0: Thank you, Crystal. Uh, also, before I forget this morning, uh, next week, Sunday, at 6.30, is our kids' Christmas program. And, uh, and you don't want to miss that, and bring your, bring your cameras, and bring your hearts. It'll be really good. 6.30, next week, Sunday. Uh, in the last recent weeks, we have been focusing on the person of Jesus and the various facets of his person and his work. Jesus as creator, Jesus as redeemer, Jesus as son of God, and today we're going to begin a new but related series of messages on the life of Jesus as it is recorded for us in the gospel of Luke. Uh, The other day I was in Chapters, the bookstore, and at Chapters there's always two sections that I like to browse in. One is the classics section because I like them and also because you can usually buy them for 10 bucks or less, and I am Dutch after all. The other section is the biographies section, and I'm amazed there at the shelves with thousands and thousands of biographies, books about thousands of people. Uh, Some of them are newsworthy figures of the last century or so, Mao and Gandhi and Churchill and Hitler and Mandela. Uh, Others are great or interesting for their role in history. The Caesars, the kings and queens and revolutionaries, Luther, Columbus... Uh, The great musicians, those who have shaped and are shaping cultural history. (laughs) You recognize him, that's good. But no person is more worthy of study than Jesus. As a world figure, nobody has had a greater impact on history than Jesus had. But we honor Jesus not just as a historical figure, not just for his impact on history, or even for his impact on us, but simply because he is who he is, the creator of the cosmos, the ruler of history. He is God. And for no other reason than that, he is worthy of our utmost attention. Now, there are other reasons as well. He has impacted us. He has died for our freedom from sin. He rose, and because of that, we have the promise of eternal life. He is the supreme example of all that is good. And so, For all of these reasons, it is right for us to fix our eyes upon him. And so that's what we'll do in this series of Sunday morning messages, beginning in this season of his birth and going through the spring, through the Easter season. And I'd like to have us consider Jesus as he's portrayed for us in the Gospel of Luke particularly. There's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, Luke gives us the most complete picture of the events leading up to and surrounding the birth of Jesus. And so in this Christmas season, it makes sense for us to go there. Also, we'd started moving through the book of Acts a couple of years ago, but set it aside for a couple of reasons, and I've always wanted to go back to that and plan to do that in the summer, Well, Luke wrote Acts. And the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts can really be considered two volumes of a single work, and so... If we want to consider the life of Jesus and then consider the New Testament church in Acts, well, it makes sense to go to Luke then for our source for Jesus' life. And then thirdly, also, there are some great passages that appear only in Luke and not in the other Gospels. The parables of the Good Samaritan and the prodigal son, Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus. Only Luke records these, and these texts are worth our engaging with. So for all of these reasons, we're going to engage with Jesus in the Gospel of Luke for the next few months. Uh, Here's some Luke trivia for you. Did you know that Luke wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else? The Gospel of Luke is the longest book in the New Testament, and Luke and Acts together make up a quarter of the entire New Testament. Did you know that? So he's an important voice for us in history, in our history, and a vital vehicle by which God has revealed his word concerning his son. To us, So in that light, it's important also for us to notice what Luke says in his introduction to the gospel. This is what he says. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, he says, having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So the eyewitnesses of the life and the ministry and the teaching of Jesus, they were teaching, they were delivering a narrative of these things to the community of faith that was the early church. And some were beginning to write some of this stuff down. And so Luke, having followed it all very closely took it upon himself to take it to the next level, research it, and record an accurate and more complete account. And Luke traveled with the Apostle Paul, and so at various times he would have had opportunity, occasion, to spend time with some of the apostles, to interview, to ask questions, had access to Mary. And so he, he does that. He talks to them, collects the data, records the facts. And he does this for the very simple reason that he wants his readers, Theophilus and you and me, to have a historically reliable account so that we might have certainty concerning the things which we have been taught about Jesus. In other words, Luke wrote what he wrote so that our faith would be strengthened, And we have some of the fruit of Luke's research in these first two chapters of Luke. We have more information about the events, again, preceding and surrounding Jesus' birth than any other gospel. And I I imagine, I envision Luke in conversation with Mary. For the Christmas narrative in Luke has a uniquely Mary perspective, after the angel Gabriel came to Mary, Mary went to stay with her relative Elizabeth for three months until Elizabeth's baby was born, and it was undoubtedly during that time that Mary would have heard the story probably several times of Gabriel's previous visit, the one that we've just read about, his visit to Zechariah. And it's with Zechariah that Luke begins his account of the gospel of Jesus, and so it's with Zechariah, that we begin our look at the gospel of Jesus. Zechariah was a priest. We're told in the scripture that he was a righteous man and that his wife, Elizabeth, was a righteous woman. Both would have been known for their humble love of God, for the integrity of their character. And so it was all the more a pity, their friends would have said, that they were childless. In that culture, it was the greatest of all blessings to have children. The more children, the greater the blessing. It was considered something of a curse and a disgrace, a source of shame to have no children. And Zechariah and Elizabeth were advanced in years. In other words, they had no children and they never would. At that time in Jewish history, there were probably around 18,000 priests And they would have been divided into 24 groups or orders, and any one group would have been on duty in the temple for two weeks of the year. And Zechariah belonged to the order of Abijah. And when we meet Zechariah, that order is on duty. Now one of the functions of the priest was to enter the temple twice a day, morning and evening, and offer incense on the altar of incense that stood before the most holy place and to pray, to intercede for Israel, to pray for the redemption of Israel. And the priests who did this were chosen by lot because there was too many to give them all a turn in a two-week span, and it's probable that for any priest to do this would have been a once or twice in a lifetime opportunity. So a marvelous thing and a great honor, and today it is Zechariah who gets to do it. And it would have been particularly significant in honor for Zechariah because he actually knew what it was all about. He really feared God. He was blameless. It mattered to him. The altar of incense was uh, about three feet high, about a foot and a half square. And on the other side of the altar was the wall, really a curtain, a very thick curtain that separated the holy place of the temple from the most holy place, where God was said to dwell. In ancient times, the most holy place would have housed the Ark of the Covenant, but it was probably gone by this point, lost in the mists of history for centuries already. And as incense was offered on this altar, the smoke of the incense rising before the most holy place represented the intercessory prayers of the priests for his people, rising before the presence of God. And so today, as Zechariah would have been there burning the incense, watching the smoke, He prayed, he would have prayed fervently that God would come to the aid of his people. He believed with all of his heart in the God of his fathers. He clung, as many did, to the promises of scripture that God would send a Messiah, a prophet, a priest, a kingly figure who would rescue Israel from her enemies and reestablished her as God's chosen and blessed people. Now for most people, of course, the great enemy would have been Rome under whose power the Israelites had chafed for five decades. The puppet ruler of Israel under Rome was Herod the Great, whose paranoia and violence were legendary. He ruled by fear. And Israel longed for this deliverer who would throw off the yoke of Rome and elevate Israel again to a place of greatness and stability and security. But Zechariah would have known that, that Rome was not Israel's great enemy. The real enemy was sin. The historic refusal of Israel to live under the lordship of God. And even now, in Zechariah's day, there was a show of religion, but there was no real heart for God. Years later, Jesus would confront them about this. And Zechariah was that rare and blameless and God-fearing priest who loved and sought the honor of God. And the religious system as a whole paid lip service to God, but was built upon rituals and rules, and the people's hearts remained untouched. Zechariah was acutely conscious of this wall, this veil that stood before him, separating him and the people that he represented from the perfect holiness of God. And until the issue of sin was addressed, there could be no meaningful interaction between the people and God. The barrier would remain. And Zechariah knew that. As he's there praying, suddenly he becomes aware of a man standing in front of him just to the right side of the altar. And he saw him and probably felt something too, a power, a sense of holiness. And Zechariah was instantly overcome with fear. Whenever an angel appeared to somebody in Israel's history, they were always overcome with fear. When Gabriel himself appeared to Daniel, Daniel fainted overcome. And now Zechariah knows that fear. And so the angel says to him, First thing, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. What prayer? Well, many of us assume that it was a prayer for a child, that in their old age they had not yet had children, and that the promise that there was a child going to be born to them was the answer to Zechariah's praying. But when the promise of the child is given, Zechariah didn't believe it. So was he praying for that? And what was Zechariah doing at the altar? In the moment, he was praying. For what? For Israel. Zechariah surely would have understood Gabriel's reference to prayer in the context of what he himself was doing there in that very moment, praying for the redemption of God's people. But Gabriel goes on to say, though, that Elizabeth would bear a son who would be a great joy to Zechariah, and that this son whom they were to name John would be great in the sight of God. He said he will turn away many of the he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him that is the Lord their God in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah would have been stunned when he heard this. He knew from the scriptures that before the Messiah that they longed for would come, there would be someone else, a forerunner, likened to Elijah. The angel was saying that Zechariah's own son would be that forerunner, and that therefore the Messiah's own coming was imminent. But before he could process what he heard, there was an inconvenient fact that stood as a hurdle to Zechariah's belief. Elizabeth could not have children. She was too old. And he said as much to the angel, how shall I know this? How do I know you're telling me the truth? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Husbands, take note. You are old. Your wife is advanced in years. That's something you can remember. Now, when Zechariah says this to the angel, I think this time it's Gabriel's turn to be stunned. Doesn't Zechariah know what it means when an angel gives a message? Has Zechariah forgotten the women in Israel's history? Samson's mother, Hannah, Rebecca, all of whom were barren, but bore a child with the promise of God? Has he forgotten Sarah, who at 90 years old bore Isaac when the promise of a child for Abraham was beyond all sense and became purely a matter of faith? Did Zechariah forget all this? could Zechariah really know that he's in the presence of an angel and yet doubt the word that the angel has spoken? Well, apparently, yes, he can. And the angel speaks out sternly to Zechariah, saying, essentially, do you know who I am? I'm Gabriel. I'm not a mere courier. I stand in God's presence, and he has commissioned me specially to tell you this. And because you did not believe me, Gabriel says, you will be unable to speak until what I've said takes place. Apparently, it was a big deal for this man of God, this priest, to doubt what God has said. But isn't it easy to doubt what God has said? The first sin ever committed was a sin of doubt, when Adam and Eve believed the serpent and doubted what God had said. What has God said that you doubt? Maybe that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You just can't believe that God doesn't hold your sins against you. You have no trouble believing that I'm forgiven and that the people around you are forgiven. But you doubt that there is no condemnation for you. What sin are you carrying around? Sex before you were married or that addiction, past or present. That outburst of anger. Do you doubt that the death of Christ was sufficient to atone for your sin? Do not doubt. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Do you doubt when God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you? Maybe you're in crisis of some kind, marriage or finances or work or the economy or your health. Maybe you're wondering even subconsciously why God has left you. He hasn't. Doesn't mean we always feel him, but his presence, even in the valley of the shadow of death, his presence is his promise to us. Do you doubt that your present sufferings will be far outweighed by glory? Do you doubt that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose? That means that your circumstances, no matter what you feel, how painful it is, how trapped it makes you, that God sees it all, that God knows it, knows all the dynamics of your circumstances, knows the pressure that you are under. But he promises, this is the road to your best possible future. And I, the God of heaven and earth, will take care of it. Do you doubt that God has given you everything you need for life and godliness? Whatever your situation, you are not helpless in the face of it. This doesn't ruin your life, doesn't even ruin your day. But joy and love and integrity and patience are all yours because you are God's. We doubt it, don't we? We believe that God, what God wants for us, sorry, it's hard to believe God in the face of our anger or depression or frustration that all of these things are God, uh, are ours in God. Do we doubt that what God calls us to as a church has primarily to do with the character within us and the people around us, the poor, those who are far from God? We doubt it and believe that what God wants from us is religious activity or church program or a well-oiled institutional machine. But God has said in his word, make disciples of all nations. Give water to the thirsty and clothes to the naked. Defend the cause of the fatherless and the oppressed. And I'm not sure that we always believe what he says he wants from us. When God has spoken, do we respond with, but... And Zechariah did. And the angel was gone, and Zechariah was left standing. When he tried to finish his prayers, which were prayed aloud, he could not. His lips moved, but he was silent. Sometime later, his wife Elizabeth conceived and became pregnant. She secluded herself for five months. In the sixth month, Gabriel was sent with another message, this time to a young girl in Nazareth. And she too would become pregnant, even though she was a virgin. And her child would be the Son of God, the Messiah, long expected by Israel, the Deliverer. And as a confirmation to Mary of his word, Gabriel directed her to her relative Elizabeth, whose pregnancy was also a miracle. And so Mary went down to see Elizabeth, where she spent the last three months of Elizabeth's pregnancy and probably, I think, witnessed the birth of her son. Later in Luke chapter 1, verses 57 and following, we read that when Elizabeth gave birth, her community rejoiced and considered that God had been extraordinarily merciful to her, taking away her reproach at being childless. And on the eighth day, as was the custom, they came for a circumcision party. To mark this child with the sign of God's covenant and to name him. And they were going to name him Zechariah. But Elizabeth said, no, he shall be called John. And everyone was surprised at this since none of the relatives were named John. And so they made signs to Zechariah, who was still mute, to ask him. And he asked for a writing tablet. And I think Luke omits this detail, but I'm sure that Zechariah first wrote, Why are you making signs to me? I'm mute. I'm not deaf. And then he wrote, his name is John. And as soon as he had written this, as soon as he had done this, his speech was given to him. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and erupted into a psalm of praise to God. It was the first thing he would said for over nine months since his day at the temple. And he spoke a blessing over his son John, who was later nicknamed the Baptist, who would be a prophet of the Most High God. But first, Zechariah praised God for the Messiah, who he knew, because of Mary's presence in his home, was soon to come. This is what Zechariah said. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, about what this Messiah will do and why he'll do it. If that's for me, I'm busy. (laughs) First, the what? That he would, this Messiah would deliver God's people from their enemies. And second, the why? That they could serve God without fear and in holiness and righteousness. Now, most people who heard Zechariah say that, again, would have assumed that deliverance from enemies meant Rome. But again, Rome was not the real enemy. And nor are our enemies the things that we usually think of as our enemies your cranky boss, an anti Christian culture, somebody who's gossiping about you, difficult circumstances. Those are not our enemies. Our enemies are those things that keep us from knowing God and experiencing the life that he has for us. And those enemies are only two. They're spiritual forces. The Bible talks about Satan and his demons who actively seek to devour us, to steal and kill and destroy. And so these spirits wound, they tempt, they distract, they lie because they want to keep us from knowing God and trusting God. They're one enemy. The other enemy is purely internal. The saying, he's his own worst enemy, is tragically true. It's the stuff inside us that is our enemy. It's not the person speaking ill to us. It's the bitterness that it evokes within us. It's not the changes happening around us. It's the need to be in control of it all. It's not the busyness of our lives that's the enemy. It's our mistaken priorities that are the enemy. It's not the pornographers, it's our own lust. It's not the crisis, it's the fact that we've anchored ourselves to the wrong thing. My greatest enemies I carry around with me in my own heart. And Jesus said that. He said the things that defile a person spiritually aren't the breaking of the rules, working on Sunday, not tithing, missing your devotions. He said it was greed, it was lust, it was envy, adultery, pride, foolishness, fear, And Jesus, the Messiah, came to do battle to deliver us from these enemies. How did he do that? Well, in his life, he pushed back the kingdom of sin and all that goes with it. Healing the sick, casting out demons, freeing people from religion, and freeing people to God. Offering dignity and friendship to the marginalized. That's what he did in his life. By his death, he poured the punishment of our sins on his own shoulders and took it down to the grave with him. Then by his resurrection, he conquered death, the great enemy. He cannot die again. He's faced it and he's won. The Bible says the most amazing thing, that we share in Christ's resurrection. Just yesterday, we had the funeral of Kurt, Walter's brother. And we could affirm for him that death does not win. Because of Christ, we too will emerge out the other side of death and into eternity. No fear of death anymore. And that we share in Christ's resurrection also means that the life of Christ is given to us, seated in our hearts to grow and blossom and to bear fruit. And the enemies that we have in our hearts suddenly don't have the run of the place anymore. There is another reality at work within us as God forms the character of Christ. And as we walk in that new reality, the enemies are choked out and we find our character changing. And Jesus did that, though, in order that we might serve God without fear and in holiness and righteousness. In other words, he came to accomplish for us the very thing for which we were created, but which we had tossed away in turning away from God. Living for ourselves hasn't worked very well for us. God sent Jesus to free us from the service of ourselves, which is merely the service of Satan disguised, and to free us to the service of God. God because only in the willing surrender of our lives to God is there freedom and fullness and joy, and we can serve God now without fear. No fear that our service to him is unacceptable, and not earning his favor. His favor is a gift of grace already given to us in Christ, so we can stop trying to be religious or do good to get into his good books. No fear that God is angry with us. No fear that our sin still separates us from him. The veil in the temple was torn when Jesus died, signifying that in his death, the barrier between us and God is removed. Zechariah understood that this is what the Messiah would do. and We serve God from a new character. Christ's character of of holiness and righteousness growing in us and transforming us. Is it complete and immediate now? No, it's not. Uh, On December 1st, next week, the days will start getting longer and the earth will begin its tilt toward inevitable spring. But the hardest days of winter are still ahead. But the move towards spring will have started and can't be stopped. And our life of faith is like that. The life and death of Jesus set history on a new inevitable course. And the reality of Christ in us that comes to us by faith marks a point of no return for our lives. The enemies rear their heads. Winter is not yet over. We still sin. We still struggle. But the move towards spring has begun. One last thing about Zechariah. All the years that they had no child, because God was planning to do something great in them. All those years, Zechariah and Elizabeth had felt the pain The shame from their culture of being childless. And they did not know that God was preparing them for something great. The miracle birth of the forerunner of the Messiah. And I just want to say, in closing, if you are feeling like you are in the wilderness, is it possible that God is preparing you for something that you do not yet know? That you're wondering why you're in the situation that you're in or that the circumstances have come to you that have come to you. And maybe you're in the time before Gabriel appears and says, here is what God is going to do. Maybe you're well advanced in years and you wonder what God has been doing, if God has been doing anything. And I want to tell you that as God brought joy to Zechariah and Elizabeth with the birth of their son. That God has something for you that is for your good and for your joy, centered in the reality of God in your life. Some of you know what that tastes like. You're there. But some of you are in that time of waiting. You're in the time of waiting. We talked about it last week in terms of the wilderness. And God is at work in your life because he wants to do something great in you and for you and through you. And it was a gift of grace that God gave to Zechariah and Elizabeth to be a part of the bringing of the Messiah into the world. The very thing that God invites us to be a part of. We're going to talk more about that reality next week when we look at Gabriel's next visit to Mary. Let's close now in a word of prayer. Lord Zechariah's story, most of it, most of his life, was lived in what I call the night before Christmas, kind of the dark period before the coming of the sunrise, as Luke puts it. And I thank you for the coming of the sun that dispels the darkness. And I pray for us as your people also, some of whom may feel like they are in the darkness. Would you encourage with the reality of the coming of the dawn? If you're good work in them, for them, through Christ. Pray for comfort and for peace. And I pray that you would help us in our doubts. Lord, we believe, but would you help our unbelief? And would you come in your grace and invite us and help us to be a part of what you are doing in Christ in the world. Bringing the Messiah to a a people that needs redeeming. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for Luke and for Zechariah. And would you help us to apply our lives to your word today in Jesus' name. Amen.